Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Vladislav Lilich, doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University. In today's episode, I'm very happy to host Dr. Nora Barakat, assistant professor of history at Stanford University. We will be discussing her debut monograph, Bedouin Bureaucrats, Mobility and Property in the Ottoman Empire, published by Stanford University Press earlier this year. Deeply researched and carefully composed, The book narrates how tent-dwelling communities of the Syrian interior experienced commercial expansion, administrative reform, and contested processes of state-making in the last three quarters of a century of Ottoman imperial rule over the region. Bedouin Bureaucrats tells the stories of elite and non-elite individuals and their struggles over property, legal subjectivity, and modern forms of governance. Dr. Barakat shows how Bedouin communities entered Ottoman provincial apparatus and succeeded in commandeering segments of new bureaucratic hierarchies, safeguarding their interests and frustrating the reproduction of imperial sovereignty. Ultimately, the book highlights the ways in which seasonally migrating people have shaped the uneven and unpredictable growth of state power in the modern Middle East. Dr. Baraka, thank you for joining New Books Network and for taking the time to talk to me about your work. Thank you so much, Vladislav, for having me and for that really generous introduction to the book. You've obviously done a very close reading that I appreciate. Thanks for having me. Pleasure was all mine. As is customary on the channel, I will start us off by asking how your previous intellectual and research trajectories had led you to write Bedouin Bureaucrats. Yeah, sure. So this project started um, when I was writing a seminar paper for my PhD coursework many years ago, you know, a decade and a half ago. I did my PhD at UC Berkeley, and I wanted to use this corpus of court records for the seminar paper that I had gathered notes on um, in previous uh, time that I spent in Jordan. And these are late Ottoman Sharia court records from the town of Salt that's now in Jordan. And I started reading them and analyzing them, and I realized that about 30% of that corpus, which which became a main source of the book, um, and it covers the early 1880s through World War I, um, about 30% of those records mentioned people that they described as, quote unquote, tent dwellers or members of um, the Ottoman and Arabic word ashira, which is a term that's usually translated into English as a tribe. And I was surprised about that 30% figure because in the historiography that I was reading for my PhD, 
these individuals, these you know members of, of tent dwelling quote unquote tribes, uh, usually described as Bedouin in this landscape, they weren't supposed to be active in Ottoman official legal forums like district courts, right? So I started reading those records more closely, and I found that these people who were described as tent dwellers were involved in all of these transactions and cases that were really closely linked to Ottoman state functions, um, especially in the final decades of Ottoman rule, right? So property transactions and taxation. And then after that, after I finished the, the coursework for the PhD, where I was mainly looking into these court records that I had collected earlier, I spent a lot of time in the Ottoman archives in Istanbul, and I found that I could link the individuals who were mentioned in the court records to events and communities that imperial um, correspondence and imperial reports were discussing. And I got a lot more interested in the way that Ottoman officials were imagining this region that I ended up calling in the book the Syrian interior, right? So the book is an effort to kind of narrativize these communities you know, very contested relationship with the Ottoman state, but using textual sources in particular. Um, so there's not a lot of, say, oral history in the book. It's mostly an attempt to also make the argument that we can do this kind of work about um, these particular communities and these landscapes using textual sources. And it's also an attempt to kind of place that landscape itself into this wider history of property relations and capitalism and modern state formation. And on a, you know, on a much broader intellectual level, the project grew out of this long engagement with this region, this landscape that I call the Syrian interior, much of which is in the state of Jordan. I first went there as a Peace Corps volunteer in my early 20s, right before the American invasion of Iraq, so about 20 years ago. And through that experience, I lived in villages where people were describing themselves as Bedouin. This was villages near the towns of Madaba and Karak, which are actually quite prominent in the book. And I only was in the American Peace Corps for a few months. The American government evacuated everyone um, in that, you know, who were volunteers before they began um, the bombing of Baghdad in 2003. But I, I ended up going back to Jordan on my own independently to continue studying Arabic. Um, I eventually ended up getting married there and I've lived there on and off for extended periods, right, for the past for the past two decades. So I've also spent a lot of time thinking about the relationship of this landscape to different imperial entities, right? So from the Ottoman to the British to the American. And I, you know, I've done that through my own experience as a white American living in Jordan during the American occupation of Iraq, right, which was this very, I think, formative experience for all of my scholarship. And I took a long, you know, the other thing to say is just that I took a long and circuitous route to the discipline of history. And I often find myself talking to my students about that these days. Um, before I, I um, started studying history at, at UC Berkeley, I did an MA in international affairs, and I focused in that MA on economic development. So um, I was, you know, I, I found that economic development discipline to be very immersed in kind of mathematical models. I had to take all these math classes, and they didn't really seem to, to correspond to or explain much about the experiences I was having in Jordan or anywhere else. And I started taking history seminars instead. So all of that is to say, I think I come into history with this sort of critical inside out perspective on development discourse that informs this book in different ways, right? I'm really also trying to excavate the development discourse of the Ottoman imperial state um, in the late 19th century. 
So there's a textual background to the book. There's a sort of personal, intellectual, political background to the book. And then there's also this disciplinary um, um, background that's really committed to doing a certain kind of critical history. You stress that the around the middle of the 19th century, the Ottomans undertook to incorporate the Syrian interior into uniform, territorially conceived grids of law and property relations, at the same time that the Russian and U.S. state makers or empire make- makers sought to establish control over frontier landscapes deemed unproductive or quote-unquote empty. Would you please elaborate on this broad comparative framework of expanding contiguous empires in which you place late Ottoman state formation? Yeah, I mean, I guess I want to first just start out by by stressing that um, the comparative approach for me is is a framing device. I think that's how you just you just introduced it more than it is an analytical tool. And what I mean by that is that the main historical arguments of the book, right, the narrative structure of the book, and the argument I'm making, my argument, I'm, arguments I'm making about, you know, these this community of people that I call Bedouin bureaucrats, that really came out of my engagement with historical sources from the Ottoman context. The comparative framework came later. Um, especially through my engagement with other literatures, actually after I had finished my dissertation, right? And I found those other literatures surprisingly familiar, especially in um, American and Russian imperial history. And, you know, I don't spend a lot of space on existing Ottoman historiography in the book, but, you know, that framework is also in some ways a response to these earlier arguments in the field of Ottoman history that the Ottoman Empire was adopting a civilizing mission towards the Arabic-speaking provinces in the late 19th century. It was mimicking what it saw as the successful colonial practices of European empires, so this whole, uh, this whole idea of Ottoman Orientalism. And I try to kind of propose a different way of approaching the late Ottoman state, seeing its trajectory in parallel with these other nationalizing empires. Similarly, I mean, I, I also talk about in the introduction how I'm trying to get beyond this kind of um, Hobsbawm age of empire idea about winners and losers um, in terms of the history of capitalism, right? To see the Ottoman empire as playing a really vital role in that history rather than just becoming a kind of passive producer of agricultural commodities. So I'm kind of responding to those two different um, historiographical trends. But, you know, I think it's important to talk about what do I mean by these nationalizing empires that are, you know, in very broad terms, all responding to the challenge of British imperial hegemony in the late 19th century, right after the 18, 1870s? So what's a nationalizing empire? And I mean, that is also a term that I that I got a lot out of in the, in the um, literature on American history. So one of the main things I try to get out with that is that the contestations that were involved with moving from this variegated form of governance um, that was trying to manage kind of regional and human difference into one that was at least imagining. And, you know, the, the who is doing the imagining here is, is, you know, Ottoman officials in Istanbul who are imagining standardization across a territorial territorially conceived landscape, right? So moving from variegated management of human difference to um, imagining standardization. And when I started reading, you know, for example, about the regionalism of the early United States, and then the attempts to standardize governance across those disparate regions for, you know, the South, the American West, um, the, the Northeast, 
uh, after the Civil War in the American context, that really resonated with what I saw happening in the Ottoman context. And I think this is this is this idea of the nationalizing impulse, right? Um, in the Ottoman context, I think we see it quite clearly in the move to codify imperial law in the 19th century, also in institutions like the regular courts that would implement that law. You know, and in the Ottoman in the Ottoman context, partly in contradistinction to the American and less so to the Russian, I see this as you know, it's it's very much the outcome of imperial competition, right? It's it's partly a defensive move. It's also one that draws on earlier processes of consolidation that are going back at least to the 18th century. You know, but but by the 1870s, it's really wrapped up in this sense of urgency about the imperative to increase prosperity, to increase um, fiscal integrity. You know, how to increase revenue to keep the empire viable. Um, and so I think it's in that that move from empire to nation state also that different forms of human difference were becoming more problematic, right? And that could that includes a pretty wide spectrum of human difference, right? From different forms of land use, which is what I'm talking about the most in the book, right? How um, land uses other than village-based settled cultivation become conceived of as problematic and unproductive across all three of these imperial contexts, um, but also questions of imperial loyalty, right, that get linked to religious identity in the Ottoman context, um, that get, you know, linked to questions of who's going to get to be a citizen and who's not, um, especially in terms of racial identity in the American one, right, like these um, problematics of human difference connected to um, to, to emergent rights in a, in a national context is also what I see linking these different, um, these different spaces. The other thing I just wanted, wanted to mention about the, the comparative framework is this idea of contiguity, right? Because that was also useful for me. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about and going back and forth how useful it really is. But, you know, it, what, what was useful to me was I was reading a bunch of comparisons of the American and Russian imperial experiences. Many scholars have productively compared those um, before. And again, recognizing similarities and familiarities with what I was seeing in the Ottoman context. Why? Because they're all trying to kind of intensify administrative governance in regions that they had these longstanding previous relationships with, right? So I talk in the um, Russian context about about Central Asia and the Kazakh steppe. I talk in the American context about the you know the Western the um, Western plains, and then in in the Ottoman context about the Syrian interior. So these are you know they're imperial polities with a lot of regional variation, but they're expanding into zones that they had all you know these these centrally based lawmakers had imagined as marginal frontiers and trying to make those frontiers integral parts of productive and strong states, right, in the late 19th century. And that's really what I see going on in the Syrian interior. Ottoman officials aren't trying to create some sort of separate administration to deal with these regions as like a separate colony, but they're trying to fit them into a legal and administrative system that would potentially work for the entire imperial national polity, right? Um, there are definitely many variations and contestations to that, and I get into a lot of them in the book. But, you know, um, that that sense of trying to pull a whole into one and trying to, like, have a new relationship with spaces that had already been there, but with a different status, is what I find useful with contiguity. I think it's also useful because, you know, in all three of those cases, 
those longstanding relationships um, that go back, you know, to in the Ottoman context, they go back to the 16th century, they end up being really important to the outcome of these attempts to standardize and intensify governance, right? So in the in the Syrian interior, I describe these relationships um, that uh, revolve around uh, the pilgrimage, administra pilgrimage administration between Damascus and Mecca. And I, I go, you know, I have this argument about how that becomes much more intensive in the 18th century. You know, the Ottoman government had basically just been focusing on this corridor of the pilgrimage route and left the landscapes around it largely to these Bedouin elites who they were paying regular subsidies to. Um, and those elites were were wrapped up in the Ottoman project, but it was kind of one of many sources of wealth and political power for them. Um, but those previous relationships um, actually become quite important to the way that the modern state making project, you know, the outcomes of the modern state making project in the Syrian interior. Right. And I think that those relationships have been really obscured by many narratives in our field about you know, an autonomous tribal frontier that kind of didn't, you know, was was doing its own thing. I think bringing out those previous relationships and recognizing them as historically important, um, you know, changes our, our idea about how standardization actually occurred. And that is, that's also why the contiguity thing is important. I think it plays out really differently um, in the three different, in the three different, um, in the three different contexts. The Ottoman state of siege is really uh, unique when you look at the Ottoman, British and American, I mean, sorry, Russian and American contexts in the late 19th century, right? They, they have very limited resources. They really feel as if they're, you know, um, attacked on all sides. There's constant concerns about the loyalty of subjects because of concerns about um, intervention in the Syrian interior. You know, this has a lot to do with with crises that were shared across the empire in the 1870s, but it also has to do with the British occupation of Egypt, which really ch changes, I think, the tone of Ottoman discussion around that geography. Um, you know, I think all of that makes it much harder for Ottoman lawmakers to actually try to create the Syrian interior as some kind of exceptional space, right? They, they, um, you know, they don't really have the resources or the wherewithal to implement military rule, for example, or some kind of extensive reservation scheme. And that is what happens in, you know, the Russian context in Central Asia. Those regions remain under military rule. They don't end up being integrated into all the imperial administration in the American context, as we know very well where I'm sitting, you know, Native American reservations remain exceptional spaces in terms of this broader national imperial law. Um, the outcome is really quite different. In the Ottoman context, these Bedouin elites, um, they retain a lot of power. The people who had been involved in the pilgrimage administration from the 18th century onward, they retain a lot of power. They become large landowners in the new property regime. They sometimes have high-ranking Ottoman military titles. So I would say that framework has been helpful for me in thinking about the, these very broad contours of imperial expansion and nationalizing empires, but, but also for thinking about the differences between these different outcomes, right? Like um, it's, it, it ended up being sort of truly comparative in that, in that sense. By the 1860s, Ottoman reformers are pursuing an overhaul of the old layered system of sovereignty that you've noted, in which places like Salt had been loosely integrated into the imperial sphere of submission. How did Bedouin communities and their leaders 
navigate the central state's efforts to transform the Syrian interior into an outlet for capital, infrastructure projects, and settlement. Yeah, so I talked a little bit about, um, you know, how these Bedouin elites who had been involved, and they're really, you know, elite members of these particular communities um, inhabiting the, the region between Damascus and, and Mecca, especially the northern part of that region. You know, they had been involved through the, um, the pilgrimage administration, and they're able to really leverage that uh, influence to, to maintain quite a bit of political power. And in some cases, they gain Ottoman military titles, and they're, they're able to register quite a bit of land in their own names during the Ottoman period. But then there's a whole other group of Bedouin communities who I actually spend quite a bit more time on in the middle part of the book, and who are really the people that I'm describing as, um, as Bedouin bureaucrats. And these are communities that had been, you know, they didn't have official Ottoman um, administrative functions or positions before the 1860s and, and really in the, in the region I'm looking at before the 1880s. Um, but they were very involved in processes of commercial expansion, right? Especially um, in, in, in the form of providing uh, agricultural commodities. They were also much more involved in agriculture than, um, than those other groups I was talking about that were mostly camel herders involved in the pilgrimage administration. These were people who were more involved in agriculture, but also in, you know, providing um, animal-based uh, commodities like clarified butter um, to town-based merchants through different kinds of debt contracts, um, and that process had been expanding a lot um, in the in the decades previous to the intensification of Ottoman administration in the in the late in the late 1860s and 1870s, but also. Um, they, you know, they had been um, they had been uh, involved in different kinds of transactions between people who I call merchant capitalists who are coming in from those towns and starting to buy up land um, in in ways that were outside of any kind of uh, regular Ottoman property administration. So these were processes that had started before, you know, this particular Ottoman governor of Syria comes into this region in 1867 and 1869 and really sets up um, sets up a, a, an Ottoman district uh, that was supposed to fit into this new kind of standardized governance that had been articulated during the 1860s. Um, so this group that I call, you know, Bedouin bureaucrats, they became very involved in bureaucratic standardized state functions like tax collection and property registration once this new Ottoman district had been built up, right, um, with, with various uh, bureaucratic offices and some officials, both from, you know, towns in uh, Syria and Palestine and also from Istanbul, right? Um, you know, this property and tax administration that they're involved in is also really important because it's, it's trying to create a new kind of land regime in the 1880s and 1890s um, where, you know, this imperial lands administration would have lists of all the land in a particular territory. And this is what's really creating land and, and you know, landed property as a potential object of investment. And, and it's also creating the possibility for standardized land taxes. And it's supposed to kind of entirely supplant that pre-existing practice that I was just describing of people kind of transacting in usufruct rights. And those were transactions that, that Bedouin and, and people who later become Bedouin bureaucrats had been quite involved in um, and that mostly went on in, in district courts. 
in reality, what ends up happening is they these two systems really exist in tandem. That full control of the Imperial Lands Administration is never really achieved. But Bedouin, these people who I'm who I'm calling Bedouin bureaucrats, who take on these um, low-level bureaucratic uh, positions, especially as uh, this position of the muhtar or the headman of what are becoming more and more standardized administratively defined tribes, which are basically um, imagined as very similar to villages in the way that they work without the imperative of settlement, right? So Bedouin bureaucrats are very closely involved in these contestations about land. They're performing the modern state in, in Bedouin encampments from the 1880s on. Um, and, you know, as I said, the, the way that they enter the administration is by taking on this position of the headman who had quite a bit of power both to collect taxes in his and it was it was always a you know imagined as a as a um as a man these positions i haven't found any instances of women becoming becoming um muhtars or headmen um and they're you know they're they're doing that as the heads of these administratively standardized tribes and again, it's it's really important that this category of the tribe doesn't show up in Ottoman imperial law, the Ashirat in Ottoman. Um, the, these, this is something that comes out of the actual experience of imperial officials. Um, you know, one of the most famous ones involved in this process is Midhat Pasha trying to actually implement these administrative regulations in this region, right? And it's it's kind of a compromise to keep this category of the tribe, even though those regulations, the provincial administration regulations that come out in the 1860s, were very much focused on the village as the, you know, sort of imagined lowest level of imperial administration in these rural areas, right? So the tribes don't show up at imperial law, but they're meant to work like villages. Um, until Bedouin would settle year round and enter village administration, which is always something that these imperial officials are looking towards and imagining, right? So these Bedouin bureaucrats, they're not working in offices. Many of them were not, were probably not literate. They didn't work nine to five. I'm calling them bureaucrats because of the way that they're involved in kind of extending um, what, what I think we can call a state effect, right? Like governance that's based on claims of rationality and standardization um, and, and, you know, standardized property administration, standardized taxation, everything happening in terms of printed out forms that you fill in the fields for. This is a new kind of governance um, in this region. And I'm arguing that, you know, the extension of that kind of governance into this region was was pretty much impossible without these actors, right? Like they really were the ones bringing those forms and bringing those title deeds and, and doing the actual tax collection, sometimes with military backing in the encampments of the interior, right? Um, and, you know, at the same time, this is when these these social struggles in the interior that are happening both within and between different Bedouin communities, and these are especially struggles over, over land and commodities, both of which are becoming much more valuable through all of these processes, um, they, you know, those struggles start to be articulated through references to these administrative categories, right? So that's also how I see um, this this region sort of entering uh, imperial administration and the the tribe the Ashirat becomes a really important reference point for those kinds of struggles during this period and I would argue that it remains so today right that's that's a dynamic that continues into the mandate period and especially in Jordan but also in parts of Syria 
um, continues to be a really important way of organizing, um, you know, organizing uh, resource resource distribution, organizing, um, you know, now it's become a really important uh, mode of electoral politics in Jordan. And, you know, it's often seen as this like pre-state um, uh, thing or extra state thing that shows how weak the modern state is. But what I try to show in the book is how much those administrative functions kind of grow alongside and in tandem with and really through the extension of the modern state into this into this region. Um, I can I don't know if we want to we want to move more into how this this is more actively um, um, contested, but I think those contestations that become really quite violent in the 1890s are, are also important to the way that 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 category gets reconstituted. Yeah, that anticipates my, my following question. So you highlight the 1870s as a critical historical watershed. So global financial crisis, imperial contraction in the Balkans and the Caucasus, and intensifying geopolitical rivalries, kind of remade state-society relations. So imperial elites largely jettisoned dreams of agricultural development, refocusing on the entrenchment of resource extraction mechanisms, taxation, and population control. So how did the Bedouin confront the buildup of state oversight and the repeated attempts at dispossession? Also, how did they exploit the Ottomans' anxious attempts to produce loyal, cultivating Muslim subjects who would cement the porous imperial frontier around the turn of the century? Yeah, so... Um, I mean, I'll say a little bit more about what I think is involved in that shift in modes of governance first. Um, so in the Ottoman context, I do see this this clear shift, which I try to articulate in the book um, from this kind of very optimistic mode. And this is something I also the comparative, you know, the comparative framework helped me, you know, helped me articulate a lot. This kind of optimistic mode of, you know, agrarian prosperity in the 1850s and 1860s, um, and it's 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 going on in the American and the Russian context as well. I think, especially in the American, um, there's quite a bit of of optimism about kind of moving into new regions, and especially like new kinds of settlers moving into new regions. And this is buoyed, of course, by high global wheat prices and a newly integrated global grain market. Um, the, the sort of difference between that attitude and in the Ottoman context, it's encapsulated both in the Ottoman land code, which gives a lot of, you know, um, it, it really strengthens the rights of cultivators in particular um, versus people doing other kinds of land use. Um, and also there's an immigration law in 1857 that's very generous and liberal and, you know, sort of imagines people coming in and using um, what's what I think is then thought of as pretty plentiful Ottoman agricultural land. There's a big shift between that attitude and the post-1870s attitude, and you articulated nicely what the crises are. I would add, uh, you know, fiscal crisis, loss of territory um, in the Russo-Ottoman Wars, but also in the, in the Syrian interior crisis. Um, Syrian interior, I think it really is also about the occupation of Egypt in 1882. That all leads to this much more anxious um, you know, state-led agrarian policy of control and careful settling of borders, right? Um, it really, I think, heightens this feeling of interstate competition and the refugee influx in particular, right? The influx of, of, of um, 
many, many, many um, uh, refugees, Muslim refugees into Ottoman territory means that Ottoman officials start to see land, I think, as scarce rather than plentiful. Right. And it also um, you, you mentioned, but the, this sort of heightened anxiety that I describe in the book about the loyalty, especially of non-Muslims, about foreigners, you know, people who have not um, claimed Ottoman nationality, which is only articulated in 1869, but also at least legally articulated, but also non-Muslim increasing anxieties about non-Muslim Ottomans as potential, um, you know, conduits of, of European intervention. Um, and again, this is like heightened in the Syrian interior, um, especially after it, it becomes, you know, neighbor to British occupied Egypt. And this kind of creates this like laser focus on problems of um, borderlands and and uh, and um, territory. So how do um, Bedouin deal with this or how do they I mean, I think the word that you may have used is, is exploit or how do they kind of use this new Ottoman anxiety to their own um, advantage? I mean, I think that that for one thing, they really do maintain a foot in both of those kinds of property regimes that I was describing right in the pre 1880s property regime, which is mainly transactional and happening in, in Sharia courts and, and, you know, very much to the frustration of the Ottoman land administration, pretty much out of the purview of any kind of tax regime. Um, but they also participate in building this new private property regime, um, you know, in some that, that's very much based on, you know, land title and long lists of who owns what land and creates this whole new bird's eye view of, of property relations. Um, they very much, you know, some of them become significant landholders in that system. Um, and what ends up happening in the Ottoman context, partly because of, um, you know, this is something I describe in chapter four, partly because of those anxieties I was describing, um, you know, there are a lot of restrictions that are put on land registration and land transactions in general from the, you know, from the 1880s and 1890s onward, that land that's not registered and not, you know, there's no transactions remains in the state domain, which I argue is becoming much more aggressive and assertive as a concept during this period, right? The state domain is moving from, you know, a, a landscape that um, the central Ottoman government was allocating rights to, to a landscape that the central Ottoman government owns and the Ottoman treasury owns as a private proprietor, right, in, in competition with other kinds of landowners. Um, and so that that's a big shift that I think is happening during this period as a private property regime is being built. Um, and so, you know, much of the land in the Syrian interior ends up remaining in the state domain because um, the land agencies and also the Ministry of Finance, and I get into all of the debates between these agencies that produce this policy, but they're very concerned about what will happen if this land is registered and then enters an open market, right? It could go to interests that are not um, in tandem with Ottoman sovereignty. And so Bedouin keep on trading in that land, um, you know, from the perspective of Ottoman uh, officials, many Ottoman officials, this is a legal practice, but they keep on trading in that land in and out of courts. And that makes it much more difficult when, you know, the central state does come in. And this is something that happens from, you know, in the Ottoman period, but it also happens uh, in the British period. And it's continuing to happen today in the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, when the state comes in and says, okay, this land is not registered, we'll register it, especially to refugees or sell it off to investors. Um, you know, Bedouin have acquired, these Bedouin communities have acquired documented transactions in this land that make that quite problematic, right? They have a lot of 
documented proof of prescriptive right over these state domain lands. Um, the other thing that they do, you know, that's sort of one kind of kind of legally, uh, you know, um, the way that they're sort of exploiting these competing legal regimes. But they also resist um, state intrusion, uh, which which takes shape, you know, in, in the interior region from the 1880s onward, especially in the form of refugee settlements. Um, and these are, you know, refugee communities from the Caucasus. They they take um, more and more, you know, they they protest those settlements more and more violently, um, you know, often through violent attack starting in the 1900s. And, you know, um, I I get into in chapter four sort of this long um, process that occurs of Bedouin uh, bureaucrats, these headmen sort of using all of the, the systems that they had developed to collect taxes, for example, in the previous decades, sort of turning those systems on their heads to do things like collect bribes so that they can get out of jail after they're imprisoned for attacking, um, you know, in this case, it's a, it's a Chechnyan community um, in what's now Jordan, right? So they kind of use a lot of this, what you could call social capital, <coughs> excuse me, they've, they've acquired in order to, um, in order to uh, sort of, you know, protest Ottoman policy, but also continue to have the kind of influence that they had before, even after they're being put in jail. They also, um, you know, they also really build on the very longstanding relationships they have with merchant capitalists in this region. So I detail how, you know, when, when this large number of Ottoman headmen are put in jail after this attack in 1907, you know, the people who actually keep on lobbying for them with Ottoman officials while they're in prison are these merchant capitalists who they have these long-standing debt relationships with so you know they're also able to really mobilize those social um those social uh connections that they have they have amassed so i think that they you know they sort of um they they use different means to maintain quite a bit of um both control over land but also um political influence going into the mandate and into the the post-colonial state um, the post-colonial state period. The other thing, you know, I guess I just want to emphasize is that the other thing I try to emphasize in the book, especially in, chap in the last chapter, chapter five, is, you know, that there's really quite a bit of differentiation within Bedouin communities that this narrative of resistance, um, you know, it kind of complicates my own narrative in a way, but I, I mean, I like to do that. It should be, it should be complicated. Um, you know, I get into the the ways in chapter five in which people who are, you know, um, being put into the this tribe category, in particular standardized administrative communities, um, how the ones that don't become headmen um, and don't own land, how they really start protesting this these new differentiations of wealth and political power that this system is precipitating, right? And they do that. I see it happening most actually in that you know this is something that I started recognizing after coming full circle back onto that archive of court records that I started out with, right? So there are these practices that continue, even though taxation is supposed to be individuated and it's supposed to be, you know, even income-based um, by the early 20th century, the Ottoman officials have a notoriously difficult time actually pushing that through. There continue to be a lot of collective taxation processes, tribe-based taxation processes in this landscape based on the, the category of the Ashirat. And um, they really, you know, a lot of non-elite 
Bedouin actors really push back against that and say, for example, you know, they move animals between administratively defined tribes so they won't get confiscated for tax purposes. They, um, you know, they say that the headmen of their particular uh, administrative tribe should should take on the whole tax burden themselves because they're the ones benefiting from this whole system, right? Like it's there's all of these ways that they're kind of um, also contesting the system, but from a very different vantage point. And I think that those um, you know those those struggles also continue into the 20th century, into the later part of the 20th century. I think they undergird a lot of the sort of anxiety um, that we see in places like Jordan, but also Syria in the late 20th century about the effects of so-called tribalism, right? So that's usually imagined as this debate about modernity and progress. And I think in many ways it is, but it's also about sort of the ongoing maintenance and power of these elites um, that really gets transferred into dynamics like resource distribution and electoral politics, right? I see that all starting in this post-1870s moment when the Ashiraf, the tribe, and the headman take on this whole new meaning, right? That really has a lot more power and where a lot of the continuing power of these of these um, communities and these these um, you know, elites of sort of different differentiated elites are able to maintain a lot of their influence. Yes, you argue rather forcefully that late Ottoman state formation has cast a long shadow over post-Ottoman histories of tribalization and administrative control in the Syrian interior. Um, would you expand on the most durable effects of the Bedouin integration into this emergent Ottoman national imperial statehood? Yeah, I mean, I think that so one of the effects that I get into in some detail in the book is um, this really uh, active rural politics um, during the mandate period, right, that I see really starting in this period. And this is something I mean, in a way, I, I really only get into it in the conclusion. And I think it's a a subject for really fertile future research. It wasn't something I was able to put a lot of time or energy into in the book. And I'm really looking towards the 20th century more in my future research and hoping to get into it more. But, um, you know, in the period between the the sort of fall of the Ottoman, uh, Ottoman state and the institution of um, uh, British and French mandatory rule in this, in this uh, landscape, there's this, you know, period of the Syrian um, kingdom and there, uh, you know, Damascus-based, but in under that, there's quite a bit of, of autonomy for um, new political formations in this region, right? And there's a lot of discussion about who's going to be running those political formations, and I think that's one really important moment where these um, communities that are that are you know again continuing to be articulated as as Ashiras as Ashiras as tribes are are imagining themselves as their own political reference points right as as potential state entities and I think that that tension which you know in Jordan continue you know comes out in the um, uh, once the the uh, Hashemite dynasty um, you know with uh, in collaboration with the British takes over um, territorial sovereignty in this region, uh, that tension continues, right? And in many ways does continue um, until the present, that tension between these these local political entities and um, the Hashemite uh, dynasty. I also, I mean, I, I, 
I, I really do emphasize in the book also that we need to remember that how involved the Hashemite dynasty was in those um, processes that I traced from the 18th century onwards, many of which actually started much earlier um, between these uh, particular Bedouin communities inhabiting the Syrian interior um, and uh, Mecca-based uh, 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 forms of uh, governance, especially giving out subsidies related to the pilgrimage administration. So that was a, you know, that those were relationships that go way back. And um, that is not often recognized in these conversations about the relationship between these political entities and contemporary Jordan, right? But I, I do think that's very, very important, right? That the sort of breakup between the Hashemite dynasty and the Ottoman state was was also quite recent, Um you know, if we if we think about the long durée of, of Ottoman rule. Um, so that's that's one thing. The other thing that I think is is quite um, lasting is that really contested state domain status of state domain land um, in uh, you know, I've looked into this most in Jordan, but I, I was able to pull out a few um, uh, references that that there's a similar contestation happening, especially um, in in uh, Syria, in the interior part of of Syria that I include in the geography of this book, um, and that it comes in the form of these continued practices of trading in rights to land that are outside the purview of the central state's property regime, and this is by central state here, I mean British and then and then Hashemite, um, but but that continue and they're continuing to use, um, you know, forms of contract that actually refer directly back to those court records that I started this project with, right? So they're using these contracts called hujjahs, which is the same kind of contract that was being used. Um, it's a very broad term, but it's the same kind of contract that's being used to trade and use of rights to land out of the purview of central Ottoman um, state officials. Uh, you know, that I see happening from the 19th century onwards. And so this, when I when I started reading more about this, I really did find it quite striking because it, you know, it's become problematic in these particular moments of population influx into the interior in the 20th century. So one of those big population influxes that we're all quite aware of is 1948, um, uh, when during the establishment of the state of Israel, um, when hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees are coming into the Syrian interior. And that definitely changed the dynamics of the value of land, just as the influx of refugees had changed the dynamics of land in the 1880s in this landscape. And what ends up happening is that, you know, these Bedouin um, holders of these, these transactional contracts start trying to actually register land outside of the realm of registration that had happened under the British um, mandate. They start trying to actually register those lands with the state that they're in control of, and the state rejects them and says, no, we want to keep these lands for refugees. We want to keep them for investment. And the Bedouin communities go right on, you know, using these hujjahs to keep on um, trading in that land that remains in the state domain, right? So there continues to be this complex dynamic um, where it makes it very difficult for the central state to ever actually claim full, you know, full, not, I, I would say they are, you know, they're claiming sovereignty, but they're never able to really claim the ability to fully administer um, this territory because there continue to be all of these competing very historical claims. And so that's sort of the other long um 
long sort of arm I see of these contestations that really come out during the Ottoman period. I mean, in general, this book is also contributing to a frame, you know, a, 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 a some literature that that wants to make the argument about modern state formation in this region a little bit more um, uh, complicated, right? To see, so I do argue that the colonial regimes, the British and French colonial regimes do something different than what the Ottomans did because they do juridically isolate these interior landscapes. One of their big sort of um, well-known efforts and strategies to, to maintain very contested sovereignty over this region in the face of, you know, um, well-organized anti-imperial nationalist and anti-colonial nationalist movements was to divide, right, um, the uh, towns from the more rural areas, right, to pose the more rural areas as non-nationalist, to really, you know, keep them quite separate and try their best to um, to develop, uh, you know, really robust connections with communities in those in those rural areas. And this is um, something that we very much see going on, and something that's in colonial law, right? Like there's particular law codes that are developed for these regions. And I'm trying to make the argument quite forcefully that the Ottomans were not doing that, right? They were not juridically isolating these regions. They really did that. That's the whole nationalizing empire argument. They actually were trying to integrate them into a broader, um, into a broader, but but very aggressive and very intrusive. And as we know, well, often very violent imperial state, right? So recognizing the violence of that project, but also recognizing its um, its difference from, uh, from the colonial project, I think is important, but also recognizing that all of those administrative processes, like, you know, the, the making, the administrative construction of the tribe as a category, you really do have to look back to late Ottoman governance to really think about how that came about. It doesn't work to say that that's, you know, a product of the British and French imagination. Um, because it really had been not only like used among people before that, but like used as a, you know, an administrative category of governance in a very um, intrusive and contested uh, governing project that that was also extremely exclusionary. Right. So um, I don't know how much I got into, you know, the, the issues with Muslim identity, but one of the ways that Bedouin were able to um, one of the ways that Bedouin were able to sort of work the system was that they were imagined as potentially loyal Muslim subjects, right? Potentially loyal Muslim landowners. They were always, there was always this question mark because they weren't, you know, they're imagined as tent dwelling and not settled and not as productive as they could be. But that becomes much less important in the minds of late Ottoman officials than their construction as Muslims, right? Because by the time we get to the period of the Armenian genocide or even the 1890s and the, um, and the violence in Anatolia, massacres in, in Eastern Anatolia, you know, this issue of Muslim identity is, is starting to kind of take over everything else, I think. And so in terms of imagining, you know, the problems with, with loyalties and land and the agrarian landscape. And so um, that's, you know, another, I don't, I'm not sure, I haven't found a lot of evidence that they're actively trying to exploit that, but there is, you know, there are definitely instances of, um, you know, Christians in this landscape, for example, who had been very involved in commercial expansion and in, um, you know, doing more commercial kinds of farming, suddenly having their land rights become 
um, threatened by the Ottoman imperial state because they were suddenly constructed as disloyal, right? So this is not, it's not as if it's some sort of flexible or, um, or pragmatic even, Pragma pragmatic is, is a word that I don't like to use when thinking about statecraft. I don't think it's ever particularly appropriate for anyone, but that, um, that, uh, you know, I think we do need to see how violent and exclusionary this this project is, but then get into its specificity a little bit more and recognize um, what it sets up for colonial governance, but also what it does what it does differently. Fascinating. So, last but not least, where has this project taken you, Dr. Barakat? What are you currently working on? So um, I have a few current things that I'm working on. One is an article where I'm trying to really make a stronger statement about Ottoman agrarian policy in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and pull together um, pull together strands that I see happening. So I talked about this policy of restricting land transactions. There's a similar policy happening in Iraq. Um, I think it's somewhat different from policies, say, in Anatolia. So think more about that policy, European colonial um, officials and post-colonial um, you know, uh, historians and definitely um, historians writing in English always sort of imagine late Ottoman agrarian policy as haphazard and disorganized. And I'm trying to make the argument that, um, you know, that it's definitely contested and there's definitely ad hoc uh, aspects to it, but it's, um, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty cohesive and also has really strong effects like this 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 discussion i'm i'm getting into of, of the state domain um you know this restriction of the land market even though it, you know in the context of a private property regime so that's one project i have a much broader project on um the codification of islamic law capitalism um and and that really in, in, that i you know i'm hoping to to make a, a contribution to the history of capitalism debates in that in that project that project is much broader in geographical scope i'm really trying to bring in you know see what holds together the region from the eastern mediterranean that i've written so much about already to the persian gulf right where i i got very interested in the history of the persian gulf um in the six years or so after I finished my PhD, part of which I was teaching at um, NYU Abu Dhabi before I moved um, back to California to Stanford. And um, that project, I'm, yeah, I'm trying to really think also about the legacies of codified Ottoman law. So, for example, the Ottoman Majella um, from the 1870s, the civil um, code remains in effect, you know, in places like Kuwait well into the second half of the, the 20th century. So how is that the case? What are its effects? You know, what is it actually important for? Um, how is civil law actually being practiced in these regions? Um, uh, you know, under under different forms of colonial and non-colonial governance. And so that's um, kind of the big uh, the big idea for the second project. I haven't I have started to do um, <laughs> some really what I'm finding really interesting research into um, uh, what's been called by some scholars the Ottoman Gulf, um, especially the the eastern part of um, Saudi Arabia and southern Iraq um, in the late, you know, in this same period that I wrote the book about, but also thinking about its legacies in the early 20th century. Um, and, you know, this is this is getting into different Hamidian policies that have to do with um, uh, different different agrarian agrarian policies, but also seeing a lot of of similarities between contestations with a new land and property administration versus older 
um, court-based uh, transactions in, in land and other kinds of property. But I'm also, I mean, I'm really interested in looking into how this plays out when we're talking about different kinds of commodities and different kinds of landscapes, right? So when it's dates instead of wheat and when it's trees instead of land and, you know, how are these, are there, what are the similarities and differences between the contestations that I've already brought out? So I'm envisioning a project that looks at different case studies and Syrian interior may or may not end up being one of them. I think this, um, you know, Northern Persian Gulf uh, area definitely will be one of them. And then, um, perhaps uh, somewhere, uh, you know, elsewhere in Iraq or or potentially Syria. It kind of depends where I can get what what sources. Well, I cannot wait to see what's next out of your academic workshop. Um, Dr. Baraka, it has been a pleasure hosting you. Thank you for coming on to talk to me about your riveting scholarship. Thank you so much, Vladislav. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate your very well thought out questions and for, you know, letting me go on and on about the book and other things for so long.